This is Beekeeper Confidential. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. I am missing beekeeping right now. My hives have been winterized, and now I'm just waiting for springtime to roll around, and I'm left stalking beekeepers in other parts of the world who are still out there playing with their bees. And I'm so jealous. <laughs> but enough about me. Let's meet our newest patrons, Stephen Garrison and Zach Tarbell. Support from patrons like them help make this show possible. If you want to become a patron, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. If you can't become a patron, that's okay too. By leaving reviews and comments and liking and sharing on social media, you can help share the stories that we tell here. Last week, I went on a little bee mission to Corvallis, Oregon to visit the Oregon State University Honeybee Lab. Wow, you guys, not only did I wear hairspray for this visit because I wanted to look extra cool, but I also learned how to use cruise control on my van, which I've had for six years. Anyways, I went to the bee lab to volunteer my eyes and hands for a project that they're working on that takes a real look at how many varroa mites are in the hive when the hive is at the verge of crashing. They painstakingly remove pupa from brood cells and look at each one for varroa mites in various stages of development. Can you say protonymphs and deutonymphs? Some of these buggers are so small that you can barely see it with the naked eye. It took me three hours to inspect 20 bees. They have six hives worth of bees and frames to examine, and they're going to be working on this all winter long. Check out my blog at waggleworkspdx.com for pictures and more from my visit. Today's guest is a honeybee rescue, relocation, and rehabilitation specialist who also practices kung fu. I called him while sitting in the sound-protected depths of my kitchen pantry late one night, and he answered the call. Friends, meet Bee Man Dan. You and I have never spoken before, and I really, I don't know a lot about how you got into this high-level bee rescue. I wouldn't go high-level, but... <laughs> <laughs> I totally would. It's not uncommon to find photos of Dan on his Instagram feed, which I'll put a link to in my show notes, to be up on a ladder rescuing bees that are 30 feet up. It is literally high-level bee rescue. So long story short, years ago, bees moved into my shed, and I was living in Escondido at the time. This is down here in San Diego, 
I didn't think anything of it. We cohabitated perfectly fine for two, three years, but code enforcement came by and said I had to get the bees out. So <gasps> I ignored them completely uh, twice. And then third time they came with a little subpoena saying, take the bees out or we're going to find you or take you to jail. I'm like, all right, oh I guess God. serious. How did they even um, know about the bees? Uh, the neighbors. <laughs> a neighbor's dog got stung like six houses down. And suddenly it was my fault. So that's how that kind of went down. Oh, my God. Had yeah. you ever had any work with bees prior to that? Or it was just, no, like, luck? not at all. <laughs> had, they were not on my radar in life. Uh, last thing I'd be expect to be doing is playing with bugs for a living. And removals, definitely not even on the radar of exist. I didn't, you know, I, you know, birds and the bees, I get it. But they were not anywhere in my field of vision for what I would thought possible for, for hobby and even for doing what I do. That's oh my God. not, wasn't even part of my anything. So, <laughs> so. so you had the bees in your shed. Uh-huh. What did you do? So I studied Kung Fu and I've been studying Kung Fu for about 15 years. One of my Kung Fu brothers, he was starting the beekeep at the time and he was looking for a new vocation, new profession. And um, he was, he, well, he still is a farrier, but he was working with his horseshoe mentor at the time and they were, you know, talking about getting the bees and stuff like that. So they had messed around with it. They had a couple hives. And so I asked him, hey, would you mind coming out and taking care of my bees? And he said, sure. And I don't know why. I still can't expand this, Mandy, at all, but um, <laughs> I saw him come out. Him and his, his mentor comes out with their spacesuit and smoker. I have no idea what the heck's going on. Never really seen a beehive before, and they just start messing around and start ripping apart my shed floor, and bees are flying everywhere. My buddy at the time, he wanted to come watch, and he got stung. I didn't, but I don't know. I didn't see much. I really didn't see much. I saw a, maybe a flash of honeycomb. And then a bunch of bees flying around, smoke coming out of my shed. And then I have no idea why. I just thought it was the most fascinating thing in the world. Um, <laughs> so I'm like, hey, Paul, can I? Can you take me out next week? Not like that, but <laughs> can you take me out um, playing with bees? And so I grabbed a veil, I grabbed gloves, and that's all she wrote. I have talked with so many beekeepers who have stumbled into beekeeping by chance. It is said that beekeepers are chosen by the bees. The bees clearly chose Dan. I, I follow you on Instagram, and I'm always blown away at the complexity of some of these bee removals that you're doing. Did you sort of learn as you go? Absolutely. Back then, uh, kind of a quick bio of my beekeeping experience. I, from there, just messed around with bees, and then he had purchased like 2,000 hives, was trying to hit his hand at the pollination thing, so I crash course myself into bees basically and then from there ended up uh, interned for a guy uh, Steve Winters down here in San Diego and he runs 10,000 hives that he takes to the almonds to El Centro for alfalfa and so I tagged along with him for two summers uh, just to get as much experience as I could and uh, realized that migratory beekeeping not for me oh. <laughs> just, is yeah I just I, I might for myself I it just doesn't sit well so I messed around with um, just trying to keep bees local. And what ended up happening was there, the fires of 2009 came through. So I was working for my Sifu, my instructor, who had the hives. And fires came through and wiped out all of his colonies except for nine of them. Oh, my God. Um, so he lost all 2,000 of his hives. And unfortunately, insurance, nothing covered it. So he was basically uh, lost. At the time in San Diego, this was about 12, 13 years ago. 
there wasn't a lot of e-removal companies. Actually, I would say safely none. They were all pest control companies, or you had beekeepers who, you know, did removals on the side, simple stuff in the in the shed or off a tree. But anytime it came to something more complicated, you'd be deferred to a pest control guy who would just kill him. And that didn't sit well with me. But this company in San Diego, they they had started to migrate from from killing bees to removing bees safely. I don't know how he stumbled across us, but my name passed by him. And Mm -hmm. so he ended up uh, doing all the removals and his company would donate all the bees to us to rescue uh, or to rehabilitate. And this was as crude as possible. I literally got bees inside trash bags. I got bees inside Home Depot boxes. And right, it was that. But but they were one of the first companies to really, you know, charge into this removal as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forgive them. Uh, it was a great learning experience, <laughs> but, but it was, a, again, a great learning experience for myself to see how to work with bees even after they go through one disaster to another disaster. Well, and I think so, that's something that really strikes me about the work that you do is you have touched on that rehabilitation process when a colony is extracted from their home. Yeah it's extremely traumatizing for them and yeah what do you do for your rehabilitation it's a lot of love and care and uh, a lot of inspections the perfect perfect scenario which rarely ever happens for us is once we rescue them within three days we inspect them real quick to make sure that the they're staying queen is healthy and or if they have a queen or not uh, Mm. looking for eggs just make sure that there's uh getting established we're feeding them. I try really hard not to feed bees in general, but uh, for what we do, we have to sugar water feed them and then pollen patties as we can. Mm-hmm. And that's just to help them rebuild and, and basically give them a leg up in this whole survival, this transition, if you would. Being in California, Dan gets to play with bees all year long, and that doesn't leave much downtime. We're, our only downtime is probably between Thanksgiving and Christmas, New Year's. And that's about the only time we really get a break. Wow. Outside of that, we're still getting calls. Ironically, during the winter, we the most of our projects are really old, interesting uh, projects that people kind of shelve for the off-season when we're less busy. What is that like? They're probably, like this season, uh, on average for the last, historically for the last seven, eight years, are probably the biggest, ugliest, worst hives to ever deal with. <laughs> common for them to be massive colonies inside roofs that have been there for two, three years. Right, What you see on Instagram is maybe, quite honestly, just a tenth of the projects that we do. Is it like the glitter? Mm-hmm. The glitter of it's your work? Of oh best. my god. Yeah, it's the best of the best, the most picturesque ones. Um, a lot of them, you know, we do a lot of irrigation boxes and swarms and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but the more fascinating ones are what ends up on Instagram, so... On average, like during the summertime, we've been known to bring in 16 to 20 colonies daily for <gasps> months on end. What? Yeah. You have a team of people that you're working yep. with, right? These guys are stellar. <laughs> How do you find these brave bee ninjas? Random. Um, <laughs> probably the more stellar guys uh, that I have that I've worked with for years have been my Kung Fu brothers. Mm. Um, and they're, they're just super mellow, super chill. They're, you know, very zen-like, so they they have a really neat approach to the beekeeping, and they handle stress extremely well um, because mm-hmm. what we do, 
as I mentioned earlier, what we post is the best of the best, the glamour shots, if you would. Yeah. But 99% of it is really gruesome and grueling, hot days on roofs. We're sweating. They're hauling gear. They're, they're, it's just the worst of the worst beekeeping experience ever. And these guys are all troopers, like complete troopers. They work ceaselessly, endlessly, long days, and they don't ever complain. Well, okay, don't ever <laughs> complain, but they should i would expect them to complain a whole lot more than they do but they just they just chug right through it so i'm very blessed to have uh surrounded by people and then i've had people work for me who we've done a removal for and they just appreciate what we do uh no rachel kidding. my um resident beekeeper the one who takes care of the rescues along with my sister and we actually took bees out of her wall uh she was so adamant uh, bees moved to, uh, her wall and the hoa was you know trying to, to obviously kill them because oh. uh, it's quote unquote more economical but she was so adamant about saving the bees that she made sure that the hoa guy talked to me and made sure i talked to him and made sure that the bees got saved and that she wouldn't put up with him doing anything less than having us out <laughs> And I remember she grilled me for a full hour of, you know, what we do and how we do it and making sure that we're, we're going to take care of the bees properly. And a couple months later, she ended up working for us. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. So what motivates Dan to do what he does? So truthfully, I've never really been on a Save the Bee crusade. I just kind of fell into it. It was almost out of necessity. Back then when we were taking all the rescues, it was mm. so resource consumptive. Mm. I was driving four or six hours a night going to from city to city, picking up these colonies to bring them back to our um, apiary. And that was just exhausting. And then sugar feed and making sure that we can supplement their food with whatever whatever they couldn't get from their natural resources. So back then, there was no profit. With I was just trying to get back to like 2,000 hives. So were, you, just... were you working another job at the time? Or were you just totally devoted to your work with rescuing these bees? Oh, no. This was this was purely part-time. Uh, seriously, <laughs> uh, horror stories. Would, I, would, I would start driving at like midnight to go pick up these colonies. <sighs> sleep on the side of the road, pick up at dawn, and then uh, finish the, the trek and then drop the bees off out in the apiary. And this would be, you know, nightly because these guys were slammed removals, but they needed someone to catch the removals. And over the years, you know, very few beekeepers can keep up with our volume of donations. So that's why we ended up having to do everything in-house, which, again, is uh, extremely resource draining, if you would. Wow. I mean, I'm trying to, like, wrap my mind around the the number of colonies needing to be relocated and right. why why are there so many well we don't really have a winter so it's always warm and there's always bees and we'll get swarms in the middle of this december um, it's, right it's it's really i'm a season. little bit jealous <laughs> don't eat, please. it just means i have zero downtime basically when beekeepers are bringing in bees for the almond crops, do you mm -hmm. see an uptick in swarms? Or do you think that some of the removals you're doing are residual from swarms that may have happened during that time? Um, that definitely does happen. Uh, true story. So I was up in Irvine, and we're doing removals from this lady's roof. And this was last summer, so I know that the bees were passing through Irvine at some point. But I kid you not, first time ever I've seen, and it's it was just mind-boggling, three different swarms moved into this lady's roof <gasps> at the same time, and they were all marked queens. Oh, my God. And they didn't, like, separate them. They was the same corner. They used the same entrance. And they parked themselves right next to each other. So 
as the colonies grew, they literally merged into each other. That's weird. Mm-hmm. What's uh, really unfortunate is as the migratory beekeepers park themselves, say, in Valley Center, where our, one of our apiaries are, you're talking about 5,000 colonies that they might have in a small space, and it just ravages the area of any resources. So mm. our bees just tank during that time. So we have to feed more, prevent robbing, blah, 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 stuff like that. Wow. Do you think that bees that are living in migratory situations, are they Mm -hmm. more apt to swarm to locations where they are close together, like the roof that you described? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, That's part, and I'm going to speak freely if that's okay. Yes, this is all confidential, but not really. My my take on, and I appreciate what they do. I've worked with a lot of them over the years, um, especially Dave Winters, who took me under his wing. Huge amounts of respect for what they do. I just cannot do it because it's so rough on the bees. Mm. For them to be, to have two, like up in the almonds, you're talking about 200 colonies next to each other for a lot, sometimes 400, sometimes 600. And they're parked right next to each other trying to compete for resources in a couple square square miles. That doesn't happen by nature. Yeah. It just doesn't. And they're simply meeting the demands of how our industry is, um, of how we need that supply and demand of, we need a buttload of almonds, but we want it cheap. So instead of you know spreading it out, we pile 80% of the world's crops for almonds inside Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. And that's just disaster waiting to happen. So it's, I don't necessarily blame anybody it's kind of a collective consciousness uh, a problem that we created as a whole and the beekeepers the farmers are simply there to try to catch and fulfill what we want as a society here we are how do we fix it that's why from for ourselves the our mission obviously is to save bees but more importantly it's education um mm. i'm gonna say 90 percent my my job to educate first and foremost and we're very upfront about that with our clients we're simply there to educate them on bees give them their options let them understand the bee behavior and hopefully from there it's a ripple effect to the neighbors or whoever they're around to hopefully humanize the bees a little bit so that they're not go they're not their knee-jerk reaction isn't slaughter isn't murder it's hey let's explore another option hey maybe we can save this and that awareness i think trickles out to the other stuff that people do normally have you ever had a potential client that has been given you know the lowdown and they still say yeah we're gonna nix them um no so this is where it gets a little challenging. Um, this is probably the, the toughest part is for us to save the hive. For example, let's say taking uh, probably the most challenging is taking bees out of a person's roof. Mm-hmm. Our price point is actually less than what most people would charge. But for someone to just come by and kill them sounds a whole lot more appealing and a whole lot more economical than it is to do it correctly, mm-hmm. uh, which is to open up the roof, take the bees out, put it back together. But that is for their long-term protection, not necessarily just for the bees. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that if colonies are left in, in walls or you know, mm-hmm. in roofs, that they can attract mice and yes. wax moths and mm-hmm. like a whole plethora of pests that the homeowners aren't bargaining for. Right. If they choose right. to, you know, kill rather than have an extraction done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and we we don't as a uh, on a moral level we don't play the bees are going extinct because uh, everyone tries to run that route mm-hmm. bees are going extinct blah 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 and so you need to save these or you're a horrible person that never comes from our mouths because that's not in our opinion that's not exactly accurate yeah. but it goes back to what we talked about earlier is our unsustainable practices is what causes that issue but the bees will find their own equilibrium over time and so my opinion based on how the bees are is we've oversaturated the area and so the bees will naturally thin out their own population because they're over competing for resources mm-hmm. and then we're going to hit a point where they have a sustainable level mm-hmm. and i think that can be increased obviously by more people being conscious of their foods or having their own gardens growing stuff in their own yard and that in my opinion is the ultimate solution is once a person starts growing their own food they have a very intimate relationship with bees birds insects and more importantly they're not likely to put chemicals in their body and so they're not going to be promoting projects that they're not going to want to consume themselves one thing that I, I like is always on my mind as a, as a beekeeper is varroa and mm-hmm. you with your extended active season how how are your colonies impacted by the varroa cycle uh, the, okay so beekeepers will probably kill me and shoot me but <laughs> I'm kind of on the survival of the fittest mentality yeah some of the strongest hives I've seen some of the biggest hives I've seen that's of five years will have huge massive um, they'll have pests galore i've had uh, i think it was like 20 percent um varroa saturation for an open hive and this thing was massive really? um, but they were doing perfectly fine that's that's interesting i i just saw something the other day and a beekeeper had posted an opinion piece about open air hives being a response to varroa as like a last ditch effort to <laughs> to um, evolve against varroa. Right. What do you think? Oof, I don't know. It's tough. I, I'm, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't paid enough attention to speak to that. Yeah. I will say, however, that uh, there are certain colonies that definitely prefer open air atmosphere. Mm-hmm and other ones that prefer uh, being inside a cavity. Um, like, we'll do a rescue, and then, uh, you know, not a day later, the whole colony is underneath the box. Oh, they didn't fly off. God. They just clustered <laughs> underneath. And I've seen that enough, and we've paid enough attention to that, at least, that some of them just prefer in the open. And those, seriously, are some of the strongest colonies that we've come across, and the nicest, ironically. Definitely have a neat characteristic about them i the, you'll if you saw the last post i did that open air hive was massive mm-hmm. it was <laughs> literally uh, it was easily as heavy as i was oh um, my god mm-hmm. and I'm, i know i'm not a huge guy but that's still an, an impressive colony yeah for them to build that that big and they had this phenomenal brood pattern a little bit on the ornery side but um <laughs> nothing that we can't tolerate how do you go about disassembling a colony like that in a way that you can reconstruct it in a man-made hive? Um, in the past, I've been known to climb up and down those the ladder like 50, 60 times easily <laughs> wow. to just take, take them down one at a time. 
um, over the years, though, uh, again, people are going to kill me, but it works. We actually don't rescue all the brood. We only rescue as much brood as the bees can keep alive. Mm-hmm. Does well, that make sense? That, ma- that does make sense. Um, because what ends happening is if you try to literally replicate the hive inside a new box, they're not going to take to half of it. Mm-hmm. And so the brood ends up dying, and there's a there's a threshold that they can tolerate of dead stuff that they're willing to clean out. Mm-hmm. If you break that threshold, I don't know what the number is. Um, it's just a feel per, per colony. Mm-hmm. But if you go past that threshold, uh, they just abscond. They're like, screw this, we're out of here. Wow. So um, that's why uh, when we are in our zone doing everything uh, methodically, we'll hit a 95, 97% uh, retention rate of bees we rescue and bees that stay. That is incredible. Will you talk a little bit about how your Kung Fu training has aided you in your work with the bees? Absolutely. Um, I don't know beekeeping without Kung Fu. So I have to, I have to open with that. Is, uh, it's been a simultaneous training process for me. And I personally see the beekeeping, bee stewardship, sorry, is probably the more accurate word, <laughs> as an extension of my Kung Fu training. And Kung Fu training is, for myself, is a, a, it's an it's introspection growth, spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. But the, the bee stewardship has been a mere reflection of that that's helped me through the process. So I personally feel indebted to the bees to be able to get me to where I'm at today, mentally, emotionally, physically to start with the patience (laughs) of working with with the creature and um, we as humans try to exert our power over quote-unquote lesser beings that we're always trying to be in control of them that we're trying to dominate them as a superior species yet at the same time if the bees are gone we're screwed so that's a really interesting dichotomy and very interesting dynamic that we have to approach so having to learn to work with the bees and do something absolutely unnatural to them, which is to rip them out of their home, but to have them cooperate through the process Mm. and to have them connect with us and realize that one, we're on the same team and number two, we're doing our darn best to save them. Otherwise someone else, the, the, the probability someone else killing them is really high still. So I think that working with that certain intention, um, being very, uh, conscious and cognizant of that allows us the bees to cooperate with with myself um, more so than they would other people. For mm-hmm. example, I hear stories about this all the time. Is pest control guy rolls up to place gets stung. Mm-hmm. Full full disclosure, I, they, there's a place for everybody, place for everything, and there's necessity for what they do. But when it comes to bees, I say leave them alone. Let us do our job. Yeah. Um, but basically. Because they, they're coming in with the murderous intent, the bees know that. They can feel it. Just like us as humans, you know when a person is happy. You know when a person is a good-natured person. You also know that guy who just has that creepy vibe to him. Mm-hmm. Dogs, cats, animals, any they, they all have this, this intuition. If you don't like them, they're not going to really want to be around you. They might snarl you. They might scratch you. And it, it's, it's, it's too evident to ignore. So the bees will keep be 
being quote unquote more aggressive to these guys who murder him, which begets more murder. And so that equation kind of builds on itself. For myself and my guides, typically we're a little bit more gentle. We approach it very soft in, in a soft, gentle manner. So the bees respond accordingly. So even if they might be a little bit more heated, they respond more cooperatively than I think they would have normally. Mm -hmm. And I attribute that 100% to the Kung Fu training, 100%. The more mellow we have become, like my guys, especially the ones who do Kung Fu, they are super chill. Mm -hmm. they, they, they keep a really even keel through the whole process, regardless of how stressful the situation might get. And they just have a whole lot more endurance than, than what I've ever come across. The stubbornness to not give up on a removal has allowed myself and my team to literally pull the bees out of any situation without fail. What was like that, the most trying or maybe a bee removal that you were halfway through it and just thought, oh my God, what are we even doing here? That happens all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> happens all the time. Um, yeah. That's encouraging. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> we yeah, uh, over the years it's just burnt out of me to not to that that give up mentality, that oh. to fail before you even began. That's <laughs> definitely burnt out of me completely. Where I know every single hive can be rescued, period, and that oh. there's no exception to that. So my guys over the years they've adopted that too, as they know it can be done. Sometimes they just need my my help and my guidance or my my eye to to see what's going on but we've we've we have not yet turned down a project but the only time that we might not do a project is if the price might be too high for a client which mm. is understandable it's hard to justify but there's been zero projects that we could not pull off i asked dan who his biggest teacher has been the bees they are definitely aside from my instructor my kung fu instructor who's phenomenal mm. the bees have probably been my best teacher aside from, you know, on the, on the animal's level. Yeah. Patron Mike Melchior asked if anyone had ever called Dan Bruce B. <laughs> Dan says, that's a first. I do know what I'm going to name my kid, though. The month of December is starting to get really crazy for me, and I have a feeling that this might be the last episode of the year. If that's the case, Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you again in 2019. In the meantime, if you're looking for some fun holiday gifts, be sure to check out my shop. I have Beekeeper Confidential stickers. They're five bucks. They make great stocking stuffers for all the special beekeepers in your life, or even if you want a little something for yourself. Until next time, may the buzz be with you.